acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A warm Miami, one day you welcome for Professor Kenneth Miller. The Science of Happiness. Appreciating Modern Painting. Dilemmas of Modern Medicine. Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. The History of Jazz. The Artistic Genius of Michelangelo. When Intuition Fades. Turning Points that Changed American History. The Psychology of Religion. The Genius of Mozart. The Future of Humans. One Day University. The most acclaimed and popular professors from top colleges, their best lectures, fascinating conversations. Hi, I'm Richard Davies. Let's learn. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm a cell biologist. I do a lot of my work with the electron microscope. But one of the reasons I'm here is because a number of years ago, a former student of mine drew me into the public sphere by a very provocative question. How would you like to help me write a high school biology book? My name is Ken Miller, and I'm professor of biology at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. One of the first things I discovered when I started to write biology textbooks is that they were attacked. And they were attacked because they dare to include a topic called evolution, which I, as a biologist, regard as the absolute centerpiece of the biological sciences. So let me ask you first about the basic premise behind your lecture, which is science versus faith, addressing history's oldest debate. Can science and religion coexist, or are they inevitably locked in conflict? I think it's pretty obvious to anybody who looks around that science and religion do coexist. And in fact, and this is something that, that has always struck me, science as we know it today developed in Christian Western Europe. And that's not necessarily because Western Europe was more advanced than other civilizations. You can make a very good argument that the Chinese civilization of what we call the Middle Ages was far advanced over anything in Europe. 
But when you look at the Chinese philosophical and religious traditions, they tend to emphasize the unity of human beings with nature. And the Christian tradition taught basically that humans are set apart from nature, that we stand apart. Now, as a biologist, I go more with the Eastern style, but the interesting thing is the idea of setting oneself apart as an objective observer is actually the very basis for Western science. And in fact, um, what we called for a long time natural philosophy and what we now call science was practiced by many in the Renaissance and, and post-Renaissance as a way of affirming the glory of God. The modern science of genetics, as we know it today, was uh, invented by Gregor Mendel, who in fact was a priest, was a religious person. And I've often heard some of my colleagues say, well, that's because he grew up poor and the only way to get decent education was to go into the ministry. But the fact of the matter is that when Father Mendel had finished the scientific work, which really did found the modern science of genetics, um, he didn't leave the priesthood. He actually continued it and became the abbey of uh, the monastery of St. Thomas in Brunn. Um, and therefore, he continued his religious life. So this is a person who had a deep religious commitment and made a major scientific contribution. So not only can religion and science coexist, in many ways, um, religious faith and the faith in meaning, order, purpose, and value is what gave rise to the scientific tradition as we know it. Is there a problem here that we tend to see everything in modern society as either or? Either you're in favor of science or you're in favor of religion. Well, I think so. And I think that tendency to see things as an either or, or also infects the scientific community. Uh, an awful lot of my colleagues are profoundly hostile to religion. Now, they might say they have darn good reason for it, because when they see popular movements against the teaching of certain scientific ideas in schools, inevitably those are led by religious people. So many of my colleagues say, well, I'm anti-religious largely as a matter of self-defense. And to some extent, um, I can certainly understand that. Many times, people who insist that science and faith can coexist are slurred by being called compatibilists, as if you have to water down science to make it amenable to religious faith. I don't think you do, and an awful lot of other scientists don't think so either. Are we really talking not about a clash between science or the theory of evolution and religion, but a clash between fundamentalists of both sides, fundamentalists who refuse to accept uh, evolution, and fundamentalist atheists who refuse to accept the idea that religious people can be intelligent? The first thing is yes. In many cases, in many debates on various subjects, and this is one, the two extremes uh, basically tend to validate each other, which is the scientific materialist extremists say, look at those idiots on the other side and what they believe. And, and then the religious fundamentalists who are extremists on the other side point to them and say, look at what they want to do. They want to tell us that teaching our children about faith is a form of child abuse. Um, they want to close the churches and do all these other sorts of things. Um, so yes, they do validate each other. I want to give you another statement from a religious person. This is now retired, Pope Benedict XVI. When he was still Pope, he was cornered by a group of Italian journalists. And he was asked, is it possible for someone to be a Christian and also to accept evolution? And he replied, and here's, here's the essence of his quote. Now, he speaks in sort of a popish style. Uh, the contrast, 
here is an absurdity because there are many scientific tests in favor of evolution, which appears as a reality that we must see and enriches our understanding of life and being. That's a little complex. So if you want it sorted out for you, do what I do. Go to that publication that always takes complex issues and makes them simple. You know what I mean. It's the New York Post. Evolution and God do mix Pope. End of story. During your lecture, you talk quite a bit about evolution. And yes, the I do. And the debate over evolution. Why? Well, I do that for, I guess, two or three reasons. One is I'm a biologist. So this is an area of science that's near and dear to me. Uh, a second one is um, I write textbooks. And I'm uh, the co-author of the most widely used high school biology textbook in the country. It's used in all 50 states. And around the United States, when there have been movements, as there have been in many states and school districts, to strike the teaching of evolution from the curriculum, to put warning labels on textbooks telling students evolution is just a theory, or in one school district, even to glue the pages of the textbook together in the evolution section so that students would not have to read them, it's very often been my own textbook. So therefore, I have a lot of experience in pushing back against these issues. And finally, um, one of the major battles, legal battles we had about evolution in this country was a court case in 2005 that attracted an enormous amount of attention. It was called Kitzmiller versus Dover. And I was uh, the lead witness in that trial. In the year 2004, the school board in Dover, Pennsylvania, small town in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, voted to adopt an intelligent design curriculum as part of their biology classes. Intelligent design is sort of a refashioned creationism that argues that some force outside of nature was responsible for the complexity of living things. And what happened, they asked the teachers to prepare an intelligent design curriculum. The four science teachers, Dover is a small town, at the risk of losing their jobs, the four science teachers at Dover High School said, we will not do this, this is not science. So the school board, think of the horror of a board doing this. The school board wrote their own lesson on intelligent design. They gave it to the teachers. They said, well, you at least read it to the kids. And once again, the teacher said no. So on a certain day in 2004, the superintendent, the assistant superintendent, had to go into the classroom and teach all the biology lessons that day on intelligent design while the teachers literally stood outside in the hallway, wanting to take no part of that. Well, what happened was the next day, 11 parents of students in those classes went to federal court in Harrisburg, and they swore out a First Amendment lawsuit against the Dover Area Board, arguing that their First Amendment rights had been violated by having an institution of the state, that's what a school board is, impose a particular religious point of view in a publicly funded school. Um, uh, the trial lasted for seven weeks. It was extensively covered in the press. My cross-examination went on for nine and a half hours. So I had to do something that I had never done in my career as a college professor, which was to cancel a scheduled lecture. But something interesting happened. When I finally did fly back, it was late in the afternoon. I hopped in my car, and I switched on national public radio. And to my surprise, the first thing that came on was the trial. And they had a report on it. And the lead line was, it's God versus science in a Pennsylvania courtroom. And the reason I found that surprising was because of the expert witnesses, three of the five were people of faith. Of the 11 plaintiffs, all but two were Christians, and two of them actually ran a summer Bible camp. 
So these were the plaintiffs, and they were not anti-God. They were anti-having a particular view of God dressed up and pretended to be science. This debate about science versus faith, has it been made worse by media coverage? Has it been sensationalized? I'd like to say that almost every debate is made worse by media coverage, and, and the reason for that is there is a tendency in journalism schools to train people to establish the fairness of their own reporting by doing point-counterpoint, by saying, here's one side, here's the other side, and this discussion will go on. That's a very, very typical kind of reporting. What that does, and I'll take the the, the part of this debate I've been most involved in, which is the evolution versus so-called creationism debate. What that does is it takes an idea that has virtually no standing within the scientific community, creationism or intelligent design, and it lifts it up as a co-equal point of view with the overwhelming scientific consensus behind evolution. So when you say, here are the two sides, make up your own mind, you're really not being fair. Um, you really should be saying, uh, and I'll give you a quick example of this. The Ohio Board of Education, uh, and I think the year was 2002, was involved in trying to decide whether to adopt curriculum standards for science that included some lessons on what something called intelligent design, which I would identify as a kind of creationism. So they decided to have a debate, public debate at the board meeting, to which about a thousand people came in an auditorium in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and there were two people speaking on behalf of evolution, myself and a well-known physicist named Lawrence Krauss, and he's an author as well. And there were two people from the pro-intelligent design think tank in Seattle called the Discovery Institute. So it was two on two. The best line of the debate was from Lawrence, and he got up there to begin his brief presentation. And he said, the audience is getting a false idea of the nature of this debate because we have two scientists up here against two people from the Discovery Institute. We should really have one person from the Discovery Institute on that side and 10,000 scientists over here. And that would give them a realistic view of the division of opinion within the scientific community. So this point-counterpoint thing, it's a nice device. It establishes you as a fair journalism. But very often it takes ideas that have no legitimate scientific standing and elevates them and gives them a status they don't deserve. What do you say to people who may be tempted to come and see you speak at One Day University, but are people of faith? Well, what I tell them, and I, I try not to put my own religious beliefs front and center. Um, but the fact of the matter is that I'm a practicing Roman Catholic. And in terms of faith and science, I think this is something that people of faith and people who reject religious faith can agree upon. And that is, it's important for religious people to embrace and accept science as a way of thinking and as a way of understanding the universe. And it's important for people within the scientific enterprise to respect people of faith. So I want to take um, a, a very, very provocative quote from a colleague and friend of mine, and Richard Dawkins really is a friend of mine. We agree on so many things about evolutionary biology, but we completely disagree, of course, about religious faith. He's come up with this quote. He's actually used it in two different books, so he really likes it. The universe we know about from evolution has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And I remember the first time I met Richard in person, I read that quote out to him, and I said, 
How do you manage to get up in the morning if that's what you think the universe is like? Richard looked at me and said, the universe may not have a purpose, but I do. The reason he says this is very simple, and that is he regards the physical universe as cold, indifferent, and maybe even hostile to life. If you doubt that, go to Mars or go to the moon, and you will see this cold, indifferent universe. But this puzzles me. How does he know the universe lacks a purpose? Can you imagine what it would be like if I started off my talk by saying, experiments I have done in my laboratory have revealed to me the purpose of life? We all know science doesn't tell us about purpose. How, then, can science tell us about the absence of a purpose? And that's the problem, basically, with Dawkins' logic. Where we get in trouble is when people use science as a cudgel with which to beat back the idea of faith, or when religious people go around telling scientists what they ought to discover or what they ought not to discover. We should recognize that there are certain questions that science alone can answer, and religious faith should respect that. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Do you find when you speak to a group at One Day University that you start with a skeptical audience that you have to win over? From my own experience, and I've done quite a few of these now, I start with a confused audience. And what I mean by that is they're not quite sure what tack this guy is going to take. Um, he seems to be a scientist. So is he going to tell us that science proves God? Uh, on the other hand, he's a religious person. So is he going to say, well, uh, there are these fuzzy areas where the spirit might reveal itself and so forth. So when people ask me, how do you find room for God in the evolutionary process? My answer is you don't have to. And the reason for that is because if God exists, then everything that happens in nature, including the evolutionary process, is part of a world of his own making. So we don't have to find a way in which a divine hand can come in and make things come out in a particular way. Now, you might ask rhetorically, what kind of God could exist in a scientific world in which nature acts according to orderly and predictable rules that we in science study, describe, and understand? That's a good question. And the answer to that is a God that fashioned a world that is rational and intelligible. And as scientists, we take it almost as an article of faith that the world is understandable. And if we didn't think that, we wouldn't be scientists. We'd be doing something else. So I would argue that to people of faith, God shouldn't be seen as the antithesis of scientific reason. He can be understood as the reason why science works in the first place. 
How do the crowd or the audience at One Day University differ from the experience of teaching students at Brown University? Well, no, nobody at One Day University ever asked me, is that going to be covered on the test? Um, so, that's, <laughs> so, 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 so that's really the first question, okay? Um, the other thing that, that, that's interesting, and, and I find this important, um, is um, I, I teach very large classes in introductory biology at my university, and I teach uh, uh, much smaller seminar-type classes in uh, cell and molecular biology, which is my field. And one of the things that I find is that they, my college students, if they don't quite get something that I've gone over, they'll figure, well, I'll get that later. I'll find it in the textbook. I'll ask them a question. The difference with the one-day university crowd, and I'm really quite serious about this, is they're in the moment. They want to get it all right away because they're moving from a, a talk on a different subject, very different subject that preceded me, to a talk on a very different subject that's going to follow me. So they're going to hear about science and religion, but then they're going to hear about psychology, or they're going to hear about how to make better decisions in your business, or they're going to hear about films that changed American history. Um, intellectually, in many respects, One Day University requires them to be more agile than a student who's hearing a series of lectures on chemistry, biochemistry, physics, and computer science. And that makes them... Uh, in a way, interesting and challenging. And the other thing, of course, is they bring a far greater diversity of experience to these events. And the questions I get are, uh, afterwards are absolutely marvelous. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the questions that you get afterwards. What are a couple of the best questions you've had from a one-day university? Well, audience? a couple of them are that you're a practicing scientist, you, you, you go to scientific meetings, you're an officer in scientific societies. Uh, when you came out of the closet as a person of faith, did this affect your reputation in the scientific community? And the quick answer to that is no. Lots of other people came up to me within the scientific community and said, either I share your, your beliefs or I don't share your beliefs. I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist, but I really appreciate your message that people of faith should embrace and support science. Um, other questions basically involve things like, um, you seem like a reasonable person. How can any smart guy be a person of faith? I mean, you know, and, and so there are a lot of people who come there basically wanting to hear a talk based on science against religious faith. And then there are other people. Well, 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 how do you answer that question? Oh, well, the answer is science is by far the best tool we have for asking questions about the material world. It's worked great. It's given us the civilization we have. It's opened a window on the cosmos broadly construed, that, that no other way of thinking um, has ever given us. If I thought science could answer all questions that matter, then um, I wouldn't think there'd be any, any room for religious faith. But science can't ask a lot of the most basic questions that you see mulled over in the writings of Aristotle and Plato, just to take a couple of examples. What is the good life? What is the life worth lived? What is right? What is moral? What is incumbent upon me in terms of my obligation toward my fellow human being? I think we can get better answers to those questions that are informed by science, but I don't think science answers those questions. And that's why I think other ways of thinking, including philosophy and even theology, are necessary. Do you find that there's a difference in the way you're received according to where you speak, especially when it comes to, to evolution, which is a more charged issue in some parts of the country than in others? Well, I have to tell you something. Um, and that is, in the one-day university crowd, no. And the reason for that, quite frankly 
is One Day University tends to draw literate, highly educated, engaged people, and I don't see a regional difference. Now, one of the things I can tell you is a lot of my university speaking, uh, which goes around all over the country, will occasionally go um, into uh, universities that uh, draw students predominantly from fundamentalist and religious backgrounds. And in those cases, it is a challenge to defuse um, sort of the anxiety, if you want to call it, or perhaps even the hostility with which they might come to a special lecture. Uh, let them know I don't wear horns. Uh, I'm not out to rob them of a religious faith. But what I am out to do is to convince them that um, that uh, we have two gifts from God, faith and reason. Uh, religion is the child of faith. Science is the child of reason. And if God is real, those two things could be compatible. And if I can get them thinking along those lines, I think that I've won the day. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm Richard Davies. Thanks for listening. Sign up on our website, onedayu.com, to become a member and access over 600 full-length video lectures from the world's finest professors. Notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.